Hello, friends. Thanks for tuning in. Great episode for you this week. Before I introduce the guest, as always, please follow, subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps boost the podcast, grow the audience, and ultimately helps me create the best show for you guys. Uh, additionally, please go follow me on social media, R-O-Y-B-T-Z on Instagram and R-O-Y underscore B-N-T-Z on Twitter. On Twitter, you can subscribe to the newsletter and it gives you access to updates, occasional blog posts, news about the guest and the future of the show. And most importantly, just an easy way for you to get access to the podcast in your inbox every single week. Additionally, please consider supporting the podcast this is an independent podcast. I made the decision not to work with any sponsors on this podcast as of right now. And I wanted to be completely independent. If you do love the podcast, if you do feel like you get value, please consider supporting the podcast. I appreciate it. Finally, if you want to start your own podcast, I have a full tutorial that covers everything you need to know. Soup to nuts, A to Z, how to start, grow, execute, market, reach out to guests. Really everything you need to know about podcasting, what system to use, services, everything. So feel free to check it out. That is in the show notes. On to the guests. This week I have Duncan French. Duncan is the vice president of performance at the Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC, Performance Institute, the PI. He's got over 20 years of experience working with professional athletes, Olympic athletes, and he's just got a, a world of knowledge in the space. And uh, he was kind enough to join the podcast. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I'm a massive MMA fan, specifically UFC. And I always love to have someone from the UFC to kind of pull the curtain and get a little bit of a sneak peek behind how certain systems operate or function just like what the broadcast team does or what they do in the PI or how the fighters train cardio that they have to do everything right I love to learn about it and just gain as much knowledge on the topic as as possible so we covered a whole range of issues everything from how the PI functions how it helps athletes the type of data that they've accumulated and collected over the past decade or so What's the latest science? We talked about cold exposure. We talked about helping fighters with recovery, long-term effects of CTE, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Without further ado, let me introduce this week's guest, Duncan French. Enjoy the episode, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Duncan, thank you for doing this. Thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem. Appreciate it, Roy. Good to, good to speak. Yeah, man. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I am a massive martial arts, MMA fan, and specifically the UFC. I think in the past, this is off the top of my head if I had to guess, past 10 years, I might have missed a handful of events. Well, so, good for you, man. Yeah. On behalf of the UFC, thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you for your support. <laughs> yes, I'm lining up Dana's pockets. I'm helping him in any way I, I can. Know, right? so. <laughs> indirectly, you pay my salary, so keep it yes. going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just the best. I mean, to see the evolution of the UFC, the format, the way fighters have gone from kind of being not a joke, but maybe not taken seriously to now being elite athletes, celebrities. It's, it's amazing. And I've kind of like seen that whole trajectory over the past decade or so. So it's incredible to watch. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, to be part of it, you know, myself here at the Performance Institute, it's, mm -hmm. it's, been, it's been great to be part of that evolution. Um, but even before that, you know, there was a movement within the sport and it, it continues to happen now. It's just, you know, um, you know, innovation and, and, and greater understanding of training science and, you know, technical work and tactical techniques that, that people are implementing to win fights and things, you know, see that like the whole sport is just evolving and evolving. And, you know, for, for Dana's always said, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be the most popular sport in the world. And, um, you know, just the increase in, in fandom across the world, you know, breaking into new territories, seeing all the different world champions that not only ourselves, but other promotions have got as well. Do you know, like co combat sport now is, um, is it's, it's on, it's, it's on a, an upwards trajectory, which is really exciting to be part of for sure. 
Yeah, never bet against Dana. Never bet yeah. against Dana. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah, he's been uh he's been uh, what do you call it? Uh dunks or I don't I don't know like uh sports analogies or euphemisms as much, but he's been pretty much in the zone for the past decade or so, even more probably. So never bet against Dana. Um all right, let's talk a little bit about you for people who may not have picked up on the accent. Where did you grow up? So I'm from the UK originally, um, okay. from the north of England. Um, and I was, you know, in the UK, you know, throughout my throughout my life, you know, I, I did my, you know, bachelor's studies in the UK. And then for my PhD, I came out to America um, in 2020. So, uh, excuse me, 20, 2000. Um, <laughs> well, a long time ago, Pretty, quite a difference. Long time. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I came out to the States in 2000, 2004 for my PhD, and then I returned back to the UK, um, you know, dropped into the Olympic system in the UK, in, in Great Britain for a while, um, period of time in the English Premier League, and then uh, came back. I always wanted to come back to America. I had a great time during my uh, during my PhD studies, which were at the University of Connecticut at the time. It's always funny because I think about, um, you know, all these big NCAA schools, you know, whether it's Baton Rouge or whether it's, you know, Madison, Wisconsin or Florida State or whatever. And I, I went to Ball State, Indiana, um, <laughs> okay. and then I transferred across to Connecticut, which is like a sleepy little dairy school originally and like an agricultural school, which is yeah. now grown. Um, so my my collegiate experience in, in America was not like the big college experience, but yeah. Allowed me to get my head down, but even with that said, you know, I had a great time with when I was in the states, and uh, I was keen to come back and potentially live here. So, um, yeah, having been in the UK for 14, 15 years, I, I managed to secure a job um, at the University of Notre Dame. So I was at Notre Dame, heading up kind of performance sciences at Notre Dame Athletics immediately prior to uh, coming to the UFC. What was it? So you said you worked for the Premier League, the English Premier League. Was it for the league itself or, no, no, a, specific, I would, or a specific team yeah i was at newcastle united um okay, nice. yeah so they, they've actually just become the richest soccer club in the world as you might have seen on the news so oh no i haven't why they well they've just been bought by the saudi arabian royal family uh um, there you so go as as man city were bought by abu dhabi royal family and the saudis have bought um you know the uh the newcastle united club so we'll see what happens in the future um, and I think, you know, there's obviously big plans of foot. It's a, it's a club that's close to my heart. You know, I'm a boyhood fan and uh, lived in Newcastle for a long time. And, um, obviously was, it was head of strength and conditioning for the team for a period of time as well. So we'll see. I'm excited. It seems like all the golf families and oligarchs are kind of buying up all the, uh, all the English soccer teams. Yeah. Not only English soccer teams. I mean, if you look at the city football group for Manchester city, you know, they've yeah. got, Melbourne and New York FC and you know they've got, got clubs in Belgium and Uruguay so they're trying to create like a, a feeder pathway like a pipeline like a talent development pipeline by buying up other franchise <laughs> clubs um, which is an interesting tactic but um, certainly uh, they've got the money to do it right oh yeah they've got endless money what um, have I guess what were some of the differences that you saw if any between now because now you've been with fighters for a long time yeah what are the difference between maybe the football players that have maybe a little bit of a reputation of being prima donnas, maybe a little bit at times from what I've heard versus the fighters now that you, you deal with? Yeah, no. And, and you know, before coming to the UFC, I worked with taekwondo players, like Olympic taekwondo players with the Great Britain Olympic team and um, boxers with the with the Great Britain boxing team for the Olympic Games and things. So I've been around with a variety of combat sports, not just MMA. Um, and you're right, you know, every sport's got kind of a culture to it. Um, and, you know, I've worked with basketball players. They, they've certainly got an approach and, you know, <laughs> okay. And then you've got soccer players and like, okay, you know, do, do you really want to, I think that what, what I would say is, you know, combat athletes are just honest as the day is long, right? What you see is what you get. And yeah. um, that's what I love about, you know, this, this athlete population is that, you know, they're real, they're, they're, they're freaking real people, you know? And, um, you know, that you take the rough with the smooth because obviously the characters in the sport, um, but you always know what you're, what you what you're getting. And I think when I was working in the Premier League, 
you know, obviously, you know, I had, a, I had great times there. I've got a great friends and things like that. But, you know, just their engagement and their commitment to, you know, supplementary work outside of just playing football or soccer, um, you know, is the gym work really valuable? Is this injury prevention stuff really valuable? Am I out partying after the game? You know, like th- there's a lot of money in soccer right now, obviously, and that, that has an influence. But, um, yeah, I just think combat athletes, because of what they have to go through and because of, you know, it, it's hard to hide in the octagon when it's you and nobody else, right? Yeah. So you better have your shit together. Whereas on a on a soccer field, there's 10 other players that can potentially pick up the slack from from, from your night out the night before. So I'm not saying that it's all that way, but um, yeah, definitely there's, there's cultural differences. Yeah, I think also in the gym, you get humbled. I've never been part of a of a team per se. I've never done basketball or football or soccer or any other the sports team. So I don't know. I'm sure there's like an, an amazing camaraderie or maybe even like rivalry sometimes between the players. But when you're just there in the gym by yourself, getting humbled, getting whooped day after day, you know, it, it humbles you. There's just no other way to, to, to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, I've been on the training field in soccer clubs where, you know, people have been throwing haymakers and punches on the field. <laughs> and, you know, that, that gets pretty tasty because that's not the norm, right? It's like, yeah. oh, crap, these guys are going at it. Whereas, yeah, when you're in a sport where every day is when you're grappling, wrestling, striking, sparring, whatever it may be, it, you know, it, th- there's no hiding place. You know what I mean? And it, it's just, it's the rigors of the sport. And I think that's what makes these people, you know, so... Um, you know, so committed to the craft in as much as you, you can't half-ass it, you know what I mean? Like you're either you're either in and you're committed or or you're in the wrong game, do you know what I mean? Because it, it's a tough, tough world in, in combat sports to do what yeah. they do every single day. So kudos to these guys. But to be around them and to, to work with them and help them and support them, like it, it's great because, as I say, like there's just the honest as the day is long. And I think that's... In, in my world and kind of my area of expertise from a physical preparation standpoint, that's all you want. You want someone that's like engaged and someone that's going to go where they need to go, you know, and yeah. those deep, dark places. So, uh, you know, you, you can use that to, to your benefit. Um, and often it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's pulling the horses back because these guys just, uh, they've got the warrior spirit, right? They want to yeah. go and it's a fight and everything's a fight in their life. Whereas, you know, sometimes we've got to just manage that and pull the horses back a little bit because, you know, they'll, they'll run through a brick wall for you, which, like I say, the physical prep coach is, is all you want. Uh, yeah, that's a dream come true, right? Because if yeah. you're in a, in, a, in a team sport, you can, I don't want to be, I don't want to say lazy, but you can get away maybe with certain things and other people will pick up the slack. And maybe some days you, you're a little lazy or I don't know, you're out drinking the night before, but if you're a fighter, you know, like, I'm the only one in the ring. I'm the right. or, or octagon. And then if I don't put in the work, if I don't find every singular advantage, whether it's the food I eat, the type of preparation, the best coaches, uh, I don't know, fight, um, training, maybe an elevation, I'm going to potentially lose because it's a game of inches in there. Oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, you're looking for, and listen, coming back to the team sports, you know, things like rugby or football, you know, some of these combative or collision yeah. sports, like, again, same mentality. We actually do a lot of um, collaboration with rugby clubs and, and, and American football teams because, again, of that, that, the rigors of what their sports require and what our fighters are doing. We're kind of coming together and just sharing ideas. But yeah, I mean, in terms of combat athletes, you're absolutely right. Like, if, if you haven't got your shit together, and, and you walk into the octagon, it, you're going you're to get found out pretty quickly. And, and yeah. at the highest level, like that, this just, you know, unsustainable. So, you know, you, we, we always talk about, um, you know, making an athlete's strengths their super strengths because, you know, they're in the UFC and they're a world-class combat athlete because they do something really well, mm-hmm. whether it's grappling, striking, wrestling, whatever. They, they, they do something which is truly world-class. And we want to obviously give them that competitive advantage by maximizing their potential to do whatever it is, you know, whether it's Israel Adesanya, you know, striking at range and just movement and deception or whether it's, you know, like Gilbert Burns, I don't know, you know, and, and, and his jujitsu and trying to take yeah. people down. Like, you know, the, the, everyone's got an X factor. So what, what can we do to help them maximize that competitive advantage? But a lot of the conversation we have in the, in the sport of mixed martial arts is, all right, how do you raise your limitations? 
because your lowest hanging fruit is what your opponent is ultimately going to be going after because that's going to take you into the deep water. So the thing about MMA is that it's got so many constituent parts to the fight that you've got to be at least at a level to survive and potentially compete um, to even to even have any success, let alone just rely on your your X factors, which is going to be your true competitive advantage. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. What I guess what was your trajectory to get to to the UFC to the PI? And then for people who may not know, what is the PI? Because we just take it for granted, but not everyone's a massive UFC right. fan. And then what is you are the the VP. Uh, right in in the PI in yeah, yeah. performance institute in the UFC, and then I guess what is your role there? Kind of what do you do on the daily? Yeah, so I'm I'm the v- vice president of performance for the UFC Performance Institute, which essentially is the high performance service arm of the UFC. Yeah, uh, UFC is a promotions company. It puts fights on all over the world, um, and and it obviously draws in you know different fighters to come and compete on its promotion. Um, the UFC in 2017 created a high performance training facility, which is the PI, as we call it, Performance Institute. Um, and that's got services in sports medicine, sports nutrition, strength and conditioning, sports science, sports psychology, um, and a variety of other things, which we continue to expand and support our fighter roster with. So, you know, it's, it's a resource service that, um, our, our fighters can tap into at any moment in time. Now we're a decentralized roster. We've got about 600 fights, 650 fighters around the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fighters can come and go to our facility here in Las Vegas. We have a sister facility in Shanghai, China, where we've also got about 30 kids in a full-time academy for talent development, trying to break some Chinese fighters into the UFC. And um, we're going to be opening up another PI in Mexico City here shortly. Again, trying to build some resource in Latin America. Um, and then, yeah, there are plans afoot to have other performance institutes at different territories around the globe so we can create this resource network that the fighters can tap into at any moment in time. So that's kind of what I manage, direct, and, and coordinate the team here um, to help align our services to meet the needs of whatever they may be for, for the fighters. And that, that can be anything from you know coming in for two days just to get some information around body composition because a fighter might be you know struggling making weight through the, you know a, a, a three-week stint where they're doing a ton of in- diagnostics and the information and training with us through to you know eight to ten week training camps fight camps through to you know blow my ACL out I'm going to move to Vegas for nine months and then get all my post-surgical rehab done for free at the PI so we see all sorts of different service provision strategies and I think um, it's very much an a la carte kind of custom and bespoke approach to service provision but my background is, um, you know, I've been a, I mean, I'm, I'm a PhD in exercise physiology, so I'm kind of a sports scientist by trade. But for the majority of my career, I've been a strength and conditioning coach with professional or Olympic athletes, mm-hmm. um, very much uh, grounded in the Olympic movement. You know, I was 14 years with what's called the English Institute of Sport, which services a variety of Olympic programs um, in the UK. I think last time I counted, I've worked with 37 different pro or Olympic sports at the most elite level. So, um, you know, I've worked with Olympic gold medalists, world record holders and, and, and world champions and things. So, yeah, I've had a, a really cool career. And then, as I say, I've, I've transitioned from being a coach and a sports scientist into now more, you know, management and strategy and, and performance planning. And how do we kind of work to optimize, you know, performance services um, to meet athletes needs? How many UFC fighters would you say use you guys? So we work with about 83% of the roster. Um, and, and, you know, the, wow. the, the, the thing about the Performance Institute, right, which you've got to understand is that, you know, whether it's Manchester United Soccer Club or the New York Yankees baseball team or whatever, those, those professional teams own the rights to their players, right? So they can mandate what they do at any moment in time in terms of their contract, right? I own you know, whoever it may be, Aaron Judge. So I'm going to tell him what to do, when he's going to come for breakfast, when training is, what the expectations are. All the UFC fighters are independent contractors. So we can't mandate their usage of the Performance Institute. Um, So it's it's always their choice of of when and how they kind of interact with us. But yeah, we work with about 83% of the roster. Um, On a month-to-month basis, we work with about 220 UFC fighters on direct programming of some nature, be that medical, S&C, or nutrition, or sports science, whatever it may be. About a third of the fighters. 
Correct. Yeah. And and obviously that rotates. Um, but you, if you think about, you know, every, we, we have um, services here in Las Vegas, but we also go to every single event. There's 43 UFC events a year yeah. um, and we're providing medical and nutrition and culinary cooking services at those events as well. So we're interacting with 24 to 30 fighters every single weekend on the fight cards. And then we also have, you know, interactions here at, at the Performance Institute. So, yeah, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty involved um, operation we've got with lots of moving parts. Wow. So if they're in Jacksonville or Scotland or wherever they're going, right. there's a whole team of nutritionists, uh, I don't know, physical, whatever it is, they are all going with the fighters or with the, with the, with the team. With the event, you mean, uh, the fights? Yeah, yeah. So when you yeah, have yeah. a when you have a fight that's not in Vegas, but abroad yep. or you know other other side of the country, there's yeah. a whole team of people. Yeah. So we send uh, two dietitians, two performance chefs, and a physical therapist uh, to every single event. So that means that the fighters that are on that fight card. I mean, the most important interaction that we have at events is helping the fighters or supporting the fighters make weight. You know, and that that's mm-hmm. there's a financial implication against that, right? So. Yeah. We, we do that by, you know, providing all the meals um, and, 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 you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, any snacks, and then any re, um, refueling after being on the scales. Um, so we have two chefs that are every single event cooking and preparing the food. We have two dietitians that are obviously helping the teams, you know, the athlete and their respective teams, their corners, um, coaching them through, you know, the most optimal way to make weight and doing the, the weight tracking and things like that. Um, and then we also have a, a sports medicine professional on site to help doing any last minute treatments that potentially could influence an, an athlete making the octagon, you know, removing any, any niggles or issues that could be influential to the outcome. So yeah, we, we, we have a, a bit of a schizophrenic operation because kind of half our team goes on the road and is traveling around the world and then yeah. we rotate our staff and then the rest of us are based here in Vegas. No, it's a well-oiled machine. I, I look at the uh, fight week every time, and it just seems like everything, every little detail is thought out, planned, executed. It just seems like it's a perfectly well-oiled machine. At least that's what it seems like. I don't know what <laughs> happens behind the scenes, but that's what it well, looks like. I mean, I, th- I think, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that because obviously it's like a duck on war, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, see the, you see the duck going across the top, but underneath these legs are going like 100 yep. miles an hour. I think that's what fight weeks are like, right? And any any fighter, any coach, anyone that's worked with with combat athletes, you know, the, there's there's a lot of unforeseen circumstances that happen through fight week. So sometimes it's very proactive in terms of planning and, and, and support and other times it's very reactive. And that, mm-hmm. that, that makes it emotionally exhausting for the fighters, yeah, sure. for coaches and for ourselves as support staff um, in terms of, you know, the, the concern and the worry and, and, and you know, the, the physical status of the fighter is obviously what is our most primary concern. So, um, yeah, we want to do that to the best of our abilities. But, um, yeah, I think we, we, we've, we've, developed a, a good system that the athletes are engaging with and see the benefit of. And, um, you know, we obviously want to continue to grow and develop how we, how we do that. Yeah. I've always wondered what is the, what's the revenue model? What's the business model of the PI? Because the UFC is not a nonprofit. Um, it is in it for making money. And, uh, I just never understood what the, what the revenue model is. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and for total transparency, all the services and the food that we provide are free of charge to any exactly. of the 650 rosters. So that is a cost that is absorbed by the UFC. Okay. Uh, now, the reason why they do that is essentially asset management, right? Um, prior to the Performance Institute, one of the reasons for its inception is that the UFC was losing kind of revenue or money with athletes dropping off fight cards. Um, and if that's a world championship fight, that can be multi-million dollars of, of revenue that's lost because, you know, someone injures themselves two weeks before a fight or, um, you know, someone doesn't make weight and, you know, the, the championship bout might drop off or whatever it may be. So that that's kind of how the UFC looks at it, is that we're providing this resource, this service, but it's just indirectly, it's asset management in terms of protecting and supporting the fighters um, you know, get to the octagon where then, you know, in the 20,000 seater arena and the pay-per-views and things, everyone gets to watch their favorite fighters and people are obviously going to pay to support that. So, you know, I, I give credit when I came to the, to the job, you know, I, I give credit to the UFC for having a pretty forward looking kind of mentality yeah. of, of doing that. Um, 
but yeah, all the services are free of charge. They're, they're all absorbed. The costs are all absorbed. You know, the fighters essentially have to, you know, get themselves to Vegas and accommodate themselves, but everything else is taken care of. Wow, that's great. So there's no direct revenue that the PI is making from, I don't know, outsourcing the, 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 uh, the facility or the expertise that you guys have or data or anything to any other, you know, maybe organizations. Yeah, so we, or we have athletes. a little, we have a, we have a little paid model. So, you know, facility, you know, rentals for other third parties that might want to host workshops and things in a, in a world-class training center, you know, we do rent out the route, some of the facilities. But that's, little- that's chump change. Yeah, I mean, based yeah. on you know knowing what manual operating budget is versus what we get from that, yeah, it's yeah. a fair change. And then we have a, we have a little paid model for other pro athletes. Um, so we get a lot of inbound requests from you know footballers or Olympians or you know baseball players or basketball players that you know want to come and spend time at the PI because they've seen what our facilities and our resources look like, and they're mm-hmm. you know they want a piece of it in their off season or whatever it may be. So again, yeah. With a high performance advisor to the Chinese Olympic team. So right now I'm oh, in wow. communications with um, you know, China sending some of their Olympic teams to come and do training camps with us in Vegas. And obviously there's a cost against that. So yeah. it doesn't um it doesn't make us net neutral in terms of the cost. We're still a cost center rather than a profit center. Yeah. Um but yeah, that that's kind of how we we operate. You know, anything for UFC fighters is is absorbed by the company. And then um, we try to earn, you know, a little bit of money where and how we can through other other services. Do you guys have data to, sh- um, I guess, proving the the effectiveness of the PI? Like, so let's say prior to to the PI, X amount of fighters were not showing up to fights or not making weight, and then after the PI, you know, what changed as far as statistics? Yeah, of course. I mean, it, again, another great question, right? Because we work with the whole roster. All right. So we're not like a normal sports team that's judged on wins and losses because yeah. we'll only ever bat 500. Right. Because yeah. we're essentially might be working with both fighters that are in the in the in the octagon fighting each other. So it's like we're, ne- we're never we're never going to put our objectives um, position against wins and losses. So we look to other creative ways to say how impactful are we being on the athlete community? Um, yeah. Thing, obvious things like missed weights when we opened up. Um, I think it was 4.9% of, of all weigh-ins were, were a missed weight. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but the optic of a missed weight and then the financials against it can be quite large. That's but that's dropped, that's dropped down to 2.4% oh, wow. um, in, in just you know about five years. So again, we've kind of halved the number of missed weights and that continues to go down. Um, you know, the, we've expedited, we, we look at the, the speed of return to play, um, expediting rehabilitation. If someone didn't have the standard of medical care that they can now get, you know, how long was it taking them to get back in the octagon and fight again versus, you know, what we do now. Um, and then also kind of utilization, which you touched on previously, just engagement. Like we, we, we honestly believe that if we can have an, an engagement, be it at the event, be it remotely, wherever they are in the world, or be it here in Las Vegas, that by integrating and engaging with our services, um, we're going to be improving their awareness of performance, you know, professionalism and performance services and how it can, and how it can help their health, well-being, and performance. So, you know, we look at utilization rates as a real, um, a real KPI for the performance Institute. We want to see that, that number continue to, to get, you know, as, as high as we can from an engagement perspective so that those resources are being utilized by the athletes. And consequently, the probability of success is going to increase. We, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, if we can increase someone's interaction, their likelihood or their probability of being successful is going to go up against yeah. someone that doesn't utilize performance services, be that ourselves or be that anywhere else. Um, you know, that like, uh, that that's going to have an impact on the outcome of, of, of your performance. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, weight cuts earlier mm. and, uh, you know, it's a little controversial, I guess, but yeah. I'm interested in not, I guess, how much people cut because they can do whatever they want. And we've seen that for the most part, when they do extreme cuts, it just, it, it's not good. Like when they go, you know, uh, a whole weight division down or sometimes even two, mm-hmm. it never pans out for them. It's just, there's so much involved in, 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 just drying out yourself that much that it's just, but sometimes it, it's good. Sometimes someone does go a, a division down and, you know, it pays dividends for them. 
But like, is there actual data that you guys can provide to athletes telling them like, Hey, this is actually maybe not, not your best division. Let's say, I don't know, someone's a true 170 and he wants to fight at 55 or 185 or whatever it is, right? Like you have data that you can tell at like, this is where you should be. You should not be cutting down when you do cut down X, Y, Z happens, all that stuff. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of questions in there, I think, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a few. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, no, it, it's good. I was it's just good. going on a tangent. No, man, it, it, it's great stuff because again, that that comes back to like the whole mission and mandate of what we do here. Um, you know, one one of the things which we are blessed with is our ability to aggregate information from our whole roster as we interact with them. Now, data security and data privacy is our number one, you know, our number one priority for what we do. But we are in a privileged position where we can aggregate data and look at population norms. So we can look at distribution curves, all right? And we can really start to understand, all right, what does the 170 weight class look like? How much lean muscle mass do they have? How much fat mass do they normally carry? What do they do when they're off camp? And what do they do when they go into a weigh-in? And all like, we can really start to get a lot of information and that allows us to do exactly what you talked about. If an athlete is a, you know, a tweener or he's between two weight classes and doesn't know whether to go up or down, yeah. Um, or an athlete is, um, you know, not had much success in a weight class and potentially thinks that they would be better at a weight class lower down where there could be a bigger body, then we've got all the information, all the data. To, to give them the insights to help them make that decision. Now, we're not going to be the ones that say, oh, yeah, you should absolutely drop down to 155. You're too, you know, you're too small for the 170s. But we will be able to tell them how hard that's going to be based on their body composition. And we can also look at all the performance data from the 170 weight class and the 155 weight class and say, actually, the power outputs and the strength and the, the energy systems that you're generating at right now are comparative to this weight class or this weight class, whatever it may be. Usually it's going up, right? Someone's someone's struggling to make a weight class and they need to go up. We can say, well, your power is not changing. You're still above average for the weight class above as well. So you're in a good place. Or actually, you know, your strength levels are super low compared to the weight class above. Either you make the move and we need to really jump on a, a comprehensive strength training program or you make the decision that you don't think that's going to be too big a factor and you make the jump and, and we've given you that background information. So that's kind of what the power I think of, of what one of the things we do is, is have those conversations. And sometimes, you know, fighters are directed to us via the matchmakers or even Dana to say, Hey, you know, go and go to the PI and get your, get your data and your, and your metrics evaluated. Yeah. And then you can be in a better position to understand which weight class is more natural for you. And we've created, you know, some algorithms and things to help us give that information to the fighters based on lean body tissue, fat mass, you know, um, history of weigh-ins, you know, have you, what, what do you normally re- weigh in at, you know, what do you normally report and check in at versus, you know, making, making the cut to a particular weight class. So all that information we've been able to aggregate over the last five years. The direct next, uh, passing on to the next question, which is, yeah, I mean, I think the optic of making weight is, is part and parcel of our sport. Right? We're, we're a weight class sport. Yeah. Now, one of the things which we've been able to do in the last five years is aggregate a lot of information, a lot of data, um, and also get the scientific background to coach or support these teams and these athletes on how what, what your body goes through during a weight cut and how best to do that. You know, there's a there's a an optimal way to make weight and then there's a number of less than optimal ways to make weight right so it's it's always a conversation with the coach with the corner and with the with the fighter to say you know what's your preferred method um and again where they're in a resource and a support infrastructure but we've got a lot of evidence now to show what's the best mechanism for you to make weight appropriately and then rebound in a way that will, again, on Saturday evening, put you in the best physical status and cognitive status um, to help you fight. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we've got to a point where we, we request that athletes report about 8 to 10% above their, their official weight. Okay. Um, because we know based on, you know, compartmental parts of the body, be it the gut, be it, you know, water that's held in muscle, you know, be it, you know, general whole body hydration, 
we know that we can pull a certain amount of water from you know these three different domains within the body that will allow the athlete to do this acute cut in an optimal fashion from about 8% and then rebound to no more than 10%. And remember, the, the whole point of a weight class sport is to try and get parity in the sport. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you know, you want people that are fighting each other to be of the similar weight. So, te- you know, we, we think 10%, you know, delta either above or below is, is appropriate. Um, anything beyond that, now you start to see people gaming the system. And that's the whole point of, you know, why people try and make big cuts, right? Yep. But again, we've we've got, you know, a good amount of evidence to to coach fighters through what we think is the best way to do that. Yeah, I mean, I've seen fighters posts on the night of or the day after the weigh-in, 20 pounds more than they, you know, they, they weighed in 155. Now they're like 170-something. Mm. Like, Jesus Christ, that's, that's uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's extreme. It, yeah, it's... Because you go down so much and then you balloon back up. And that's just like, that's a lot of work for the body to do. Like cut down, you know, I don't know how much, 20 pounds in, in, in a couple of days, right? Something like that, yeah. Balloon back up another 20 in less than 24. And then you have to go fight the biggest fight that next day. Like, Jesus, that's a lot to go through. Yeah, the, the, there's no other... No other sports that like position themselves in a like yeah you're absolutely right like what 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 the athletes have to do prior to going into an octagon and and performing optimally which is not just like playing badminton or ping pong or yeah like, swimming it's it's a fist fight right so um, you know you would want to be optimized for that what these fighters do. Um, you know, 20 to 30, to 30 hours immediately prior to that is pretty significant and not no other sport does that, right? It's not like you're going in a soccer match and you're restricting your calories for the four days before it. Your, your sleep is all disrupted. You're not drinking, you know, water and things. So, and it's very, it's very nuanced to what combat sports are. And that's why the, the, the public optic of like these washed out fighters on the scales or people fainting and things is what we need to remove from the sport because that's, that's malpractice that, that that's guys, not girls, not doing it in the most effective fashion. Mm-hmm. And that's what the performance Institute's trying to do is just move the narrative a little bit, bring science data, insight and understanding as to, yeah, you can make weight in a weight class sport by dropping your body, you know, by dropping your body weight, um, through some tactics and techniques, um, but it needs to be done in an effective way. Otherwise, you're going to compromise yourself going into competition. And the con, like MMA, is a sport of consequences, right? It's not like you just lose the the fight. Excuse me, you lose a race, or you know you miss the shot on, on a tennis court, or you know you don't hold a putt. Like no, you're getting knocked out, and there's going to be yeah. a physical attrition to that. So. Um, that's, I think, where we're at now in terms of trying to support the whole global community. And, you know, it's not just the UFC roster, but, you know, the, the UFC trying to lead the, you know, the, the, the narrative of like, what's, what's the best way to go about this practice for amateur combat athletes that potentially move into pro ranks and beyond? Because, again, it's about health, well-being and performance of, of everybody that enjoys doing combat sports. Yeah, I remember there was a video a few years back of Darren Till cutting weight. Mm. And I, it was hard to watch. Like, you know, I remember the guy literally crawling out the sauna, could barely get up to even, um, oh, there you go. Could barely get up to even like, you know, the, his coach was holding pads. He was like, all right, let's, you know, let's, let's keep, uh, let's keep punching. Yeah. Couldn't do it. The guy was, was dying. And I was like, there's absolutely, and I think, I, I forget which fight this was, but I, I actually do believe he ended up losing that fight because there's just no, I was like, there's no way in a few days you're going to be able to be your optimal self. And I was wondering about um, just someone that that kind of recently became uh, really famous in the UFC, Patty Pimblett, and cuts a lot of weight. Two weeks later, this guy balloons back up. Right. Like just like cheeks all full, like like eating Oreos all day, just fatty. And I was just wondering, like, is that sustainable long term to just balloon cut, balloon cut throughout your whole career? There's got to be like, I don't know, a drop point, right? Like your body's just not going to be able to sustain that. Yeah. So again, it's the whole it's the whole purpose of why the Performance Institute was put into place. Right. I mean. I always talk about a 52-week fight camp, 
right? Fight camps are normally eight weeks in duration and, and within combat sports, there's kind of this, this whole default to eight weeks, like they're working eight-week cycles. It's an eight-week fight camp, eight-week this, eight-week that. Well, you know, it, it, there's, there's money in the sport now and also not you remove the money, just athlete longevity. Um, you, you have to be a professional all year round, i.e. the 52-week fight camp. Yeah. Um, and you have to consider the consequences of what it does to your metabolism, as, as, as you're talking about, and, and metabolic injury is, is a real true thing that we deal with, um, of you know gorging and letting yourself go and then starving and restricting on a cyclical basis. That, that, that can be very disruptive to you know metabolism, hormonal and endocrine profiles, um, you know, a, a lot of different factors within your body. So like, again, that comes back to what, what our messaging is to the, to the community, but because they're independent contractors, we're giving, they advice, what they want. We're giving advice. So it, it's on them to choose how they want to go about it. Um, but you, you make weight until you don't make weight. All right. And that's the first time you miss weight. Like, oh, I've never missed weight. I've never missed weight. I've blown up. I've never missed weight. Well, until the one time when you do miss weight and then you lose money or until something becomes a physiological or biological issue that is now leading to potentially a higher incidence of injury or niggling injuries that won't heal or other factors that are related to how your behaviors, your performance behaviors are conducted throughout the year. So again, I think that's just a, one, one of the, one of the great things about combat sport and again, like fight sports like the, the UFC, it, it's true prize fighting, right? You know, yeah. and, and there's there's the, you know, the old the old schoolers like, you know, Cowboy Cerrone things like that have gone into, you know, bars and said, yeah, I'm going to fight this guy and rocking up and I'm going to get earned money. And it's it's true prize fighting. Like that whole kind of romance of like the prize fight is still within the sport. Um but what we're now starting to figure out and find is that um, being more professional in a, in a year-round perspective, and I'm not knocking Cowboy or anybody because he's really engaged with what we do now as well, but you know, having a, a, a different mentality of like trying to be consistent, it's going to give you career longevity, which is always hard to see as an athlete because they're living there now. Like If I do something now, it's hard for me to tangibly to think that that's going to add three years onto my career, but yeah. the potential is right. And that's more earning capacity. So I think we're just professional. We're trying to professionalize the whole thing. Um, and we're trying to remove some of these bad practices where people are ballooning up and then cutting and ballooning up on this big roller coaster of, uh, of physiological change. Is there something like, for example, the, the, the Diaz brothers, right? Like super famous for their cardio, right? Yeah. Like Iron Man, triathlons, all that stuff. And then you have other fighters without naming names that are not known for their cardio. In fact, they, they're known for gassing out two, yeah. three rounds in super strong though. Right. Like usually they're like, you know, one touch, they'll, they'll put you down, but just cardio wise, they don't have it. I think you touched upon it earlier about like highlighting their strengths. Um, but is there a way to get someone that just historically usually gasses out during fights and get him to a, Tony Ferguson or a Colby Covington or a Diaz brother level of cardio. Is that possible? I mean, it's it, so, yeah, I mean, it, of course it's possible, but there's a time commitment to that. Right. And a, and a, and a training strategy that needs to be progressive in nature and somewhat chronic in nature across time. It's not something that we can do in an eight week fight camp is take you from, you know, a certain energy system preference and totally flip your energy systems over to a, a different approach. Like that, that's not happening that amount of time. Yeah. What, what, what I will say is that in our sport, a lot of fighters come to us with stylistic background preferences, right? So Colby Covington's a wrestler, you know, like he's got a great cardio because of what wrestling throughout high school and college gave him, you know what I mean? And, and we, we see that with a lot of our athletes that they come with stylistic preferences. And now we actually can book it the different fight styles and say, well, we know if you're a Sambo player coming out of Russia or whatever, you're going to have certain characteristics. If you're a kickboxer, you're going to have very different characteristics. So you're a wrestler, different again, right? So now we're starting to already differentiate between what someone's going to come to the party with based on what fight style their preference is. But yes, then it comes down to that normal distribution of our data again to say, hey, listen, you're, you're in the below average to poor range for 
aerobic fitness. You know what I mean? And then we've got Nate Nick Diaz over here and Paul Felder, like they're on the super like gold standard side. So yeah. like, are you okay sitting at this end of the curve or do you want to move towards this end of the curve? Cause then we can help and support you with, with that programming. And yeah, like nudging physiology is, is training science, right? How, how you, how you take physiology and adapt it through different training interventions. Again, comes back to the whole narrative of professionalizing combat sport, which has always been pretty spit and sawdust, right? It's like, I'm just going to go in there. I'm going to fight. Yeah. Now I say that because listen, we've got some, some athletes that don't want to pick up a, a weight and don't want to like live. Like, you know, I, I know you won't mind me saying it, like Bobby green, like he's on a tear at the minute. Mm-hmm. Bobby, Bobby's not a big weight lift. Like he doesn't want to pick up a lot of weights. Like he, he's, he's all about speed and movement and very boxing traditional background. Um, and that works for him, right? So we're in the conversation about like when do we try and help Bobby, and when does he want us to leave? When, when does he want us to leave him alone? Um, but also like what's what's the type of style of training does he want? Is it more body weight? Is it more kind of parkour and gymnastics, or is it like are we picking up weights and throwing them above our head, which some people are desperate to do? You know, maybe they come from more of a wrestling background or whatever it may be. So for each athlete, you got to find what works for them as well. So it's not one size fits all. You know, yeah. here's the here's the gold standard training program for an MMA fighter. Obviously, we've got kind of awareness of what that kind of average approach looks like, but then you're kind of just flexing it and pivoting it based on personal preferences. Number one, are they going to do this training? Because if they don't want to do the training, their engagement in it is going to be zero and it's going to be useless. You can write the world's best training program, but if Bobby Green doesn't want to pick up a weight, it's pretty irrelevant. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we're always kind of saying we come back to an n of one like every athlete that we work with is a, a physiological organism that is very different to the next person so if we give them all the same program it's not going to have the same the same results so you know that's, yeah so, so there's not like a set template that you guys use for all ufc fighters you customize it to each and every one based on whatever it is that whatever their needs are is that true also sorry just have a, a quick yeah. question is that true for I mean, it has to be right for nutrition as well. I remember when I was, there was a period I was doing a lot of like mountaineering and I remember one of the guides told me, and this happened to be so true. I actually didn't end up eating while I was up on the mountain, but he said like, whatever it is that you're coming up on the mountain with the food that you're bringing, make sure you love it down at like sea level. Because if you don't like it at sea level, you're going to absolutely hate it up top. And I don't know what is what it is about the elevation, but I literally couldn't eat the food. It was disgusting. I ended up actually not eating for like the whole night. And I was, it's, I wonder if it's the same, right? Like it, they have to be on a certain regimen, a certain diet, but if they don't like the food, they're not going to eat it. Like you have to optimize it for them so that they like it and that it serves their caloric needs. Right. Yeah. I mean, listen, it- at the start of the whole conversation, we're dealing with human beings, right? Yeah. The fascinating thing about humans is that we we have personal choices and preferences. And and you've nailed it, right? At the end of the day, the, the, it's about compliance. Compliance to a strength training program, compliance to a fitness program, compliance to a, a feeding or a diet program. Like what the the most of recovery, the most successful thing is that the one that someone's going to be most compliant to, right, and engage with. That starts right up here in, in, in someone's mind. And we have to be cognizant of that. And I think, you know, that that's often, you know, like I said, I've been in this game a long time. People, be, you know, in the world of strength and condition or whatever, people give a program to an athlete, not really understanding, like, if there's, if there's exercise selection in there that is against their kind of preferences, you know? Um, so, so what's leading the dance? Is the athlete leading the dance or is the program leading the dance? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you need a blend of both. But yeah, it's it starts with like having a conversation. Like you got to find out, you know, do you do you like eating um, eggs because you know we're going to remove a lot of vegetables and you're going to eat a lot of program. I don't like eggs. Well, holy shit! Well, why are we programming eggs in someone's diet? And that, that's a really stupid example, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the reality of it. Is yes, you, you've got to get inside their preferences to begin with. But then, all right, it's a discussion around. All right, we we have to restrict, you know food group X, because that's going to be impactful on your physiology. And we're trying to make your fat mass um, reduce across time. So we've got to remove it from your diet. Are you cool with that? Then then you're into the conversation of, you know, how can you stimulate the brain of a human being to 
remove it and then feel like they're getting reward from that food as well. Because again, food is a very visceral thing for people. Sure. Um, it's it's something that has to be managed very closely because it's such a personal thing, you know? Um, same with training, but not potentially to the same extent. So all the time, yeah, we're having the conversation. Like I say, N of one, we, we look at every... There's no cookie-cutter programming in the UFC PI. We, we write every program from scratch for every single athlete because their physiology is different, their psychology is different, their social and emotional state is different, their, their home life is different. If you're you know, living with your wife and she can cook or if you're living alone and you can't be bothered to cook, what, you, what what's your preference going to be? If you're working two jobs as well as being a UFC fighter, what are you doing? You know, like, so there's so many other variables that come into it that you need to consider. Sure. It's not just a matter of saying, here's, here's gold standard program to take some from, from this weight to this weight. Yeah. It's not as simple as that. If you're going to do it optimally. Now, you can you can grab a program and say, all right, I'm going to follow this. And of course, it's going to have, have an effect. Um, but we always say, you know, we're, in the, we're in, the, in the top echelons of trying to make optimal change to make world champions. So a generic program is probably not going to get you to the point that you want to be a, a world champion. It needs to become more specific to your, your, your physiological needs. Yeah, 100%. Do you guys look at long-term effects of head trauma? Yeah. Or is there, I guess, is there preventative work or treatment that you, that you offer or are even available other than obviously getting hit in the, in the head, which you can't, uh, there's no way to get around that. Um, or is all that post-fighting career? No. So again, listen, you, you, you're hitting on all the major topics, which is fantastic because ultimately, you know, we, we're in a combat sport, right? Yeah. And we're not hiding them from the facts that athletes are going to get hit in the head. And, and, and part of, you know, part of the objective of our sport is to knock somebody out, right? That's because a- some sports do, some sports do try like, and then NFL, right. There was a whole con- controversy, like, they were trying to hide the fact that, 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 yeah. um, what, what did you call it when you get the head trauma? TBI or CTE? CTE, yeah. They were trying to, to hide the fact. The UFC is not trying to hide the fact. You can't hide the fact like this is a, this is a yeah. prize fighting. So, yeah, so, so it, it's a combat sport. And within the, the parameters of knowing it's a combat sport, we're still trying to make it as safe as possible for our competitors, right? So, you know, whether that's laws and regulations, whether that's anti-doping, which obviously we've got a big position stand on anti-doping in the UFC that not all promotions do have. Um, you know, you're talking about athlete health in the octagon there. We're looking at equipment development with some of our partners on how we're changing the equipment to, to you know, promote better fights or longevity of fighters. Um, we are the primary donor to the Cleveland Clinic um, Athlete Brain Health Study, which is now in its ninth year of funding from the UFC. And we've put millions of dollars into that research to look at not only current fighters, but also fighters after they retire to look at brain imaging and what happens to their brains during you know, their retirement and, and does it change across time and how can we support our insights and awareness of that, whether it's looking at instrumented mouthpieces where we can look at the number of impacts and brain, you know, the nature of the impacts that an athlete's getting to look at using technology and data to track this across time, like nutrition interventions, things that we can pull inflammation out of the brain and we can get energy to the brain after sparring or after a fight that will expedite the recovery of, of the brain. So, you know, we've, we've got a ton of different verticals around brain health. Um, that again, we're, we're trying to, uh, really gain a lot of insight and information on to support the fighters. Is THC something you guys work with or is that not allowed still because it's federally legal? Yeah, not THC, but CBD. Um, We obviously do, you know, we've we've been looking into CBD as a, you know, which is part of the marijuana um, plant uh, extract um, and and the, you know, the pain relief and inflammation relief, you know, components of that. Um, I mean, Dana was looking into, you know, potentially working with some academic partners on psilocybin. Uh, which is that's, you know, that's that's Joe Rogan, yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, you know, no, nothing's off the table. Um, yeah. Some of it is easier to do than other things based on FDA clearance and things like that. But again, I say that because the UFC is is, is cognizant that all right, we want to look after our athletes even when they're not with the promotion. There's an obligation to see, you know, how they can continue to live their their healthiest life, their best life. So yeah. You know, I had um, Kenny Florian on the podcast and uh, he was 
talking about how martial arts is 60% mental, 40% physical, or roughly around those numbers, right? And um, funny because Forrest Griffin, who works, uh, works for us, says, uh, I think he said it's, it's 90% mental apart from the 60% that's physical. <laughs> <laughs> that's a much better line. I might have to right. steal that one. <laughs> but do you guys, you know, so I had, a, I remember, I, so I've, I've been training Muay Thai many, many, many years. Um, and I remember I had a friend at the gym back home absolute savage assassin like this guy was like this ukrainian guy love him like a really good friend but just he would decimate everyone in the gym right my coach would always tell him like go fight like i'll I'll put you in fights never wanted to do fights and i would i would ask him like why not he was like i i can't like i'm not going to be able to sleep for weeks mentally i get nervous i get hives but in the gym assassin Right. right yeah and um i was wondering like do you guys work with with fighters on the mental aspect as well. I don't know if that's, you know, pertains to what you do specifically, but within the PI, is that something you guys do? It is. We didn't open up when we opened up in May of 2017, we didn't have sports psychology as part of our service portfolio. Um, became a pretty aware pretty quickly that that was a need. Um, and we've since added um, psychology as a service that we we provide to the fighters through the UFCPI as well. Now, again, sports psychology has many different parameters to it. For some people, it's just like a performance lifestyle. Like I, I can't get my training structure managed and I'm just exhausted. And other people, it's like, you know, I can't walk out in front of 20,000 people in a in a in an arena. Yeah. And other people is like, well, between rounds, you know, I'm having a great round and then I can't reset my, you know, my, my mind during rounds. So it comes in many different facets. But yeah, we offer that um to the fighters through the PI. Um and and you know, the utilization of that again has been has been a an upward trajectory in terms of like fighters starting to really see the benefit of, you know the mental side of the game, because yeah, I think, you know, we've, we've, we've the coat, you know, before the PI and, you know, we, long after we we're gone, you know, people were understanding how to fight. Right. So we're not, we're not bold enough to tell people, you know, the fighters and the coaches that, you know, we're, we're telling them how to do their jobs that, that they're figuring out this sport all the time. It's a sport of evolution is, is MMA, you know, all these new techniques, you know, look at low leg kicks and low things leg kicks. The sport, yeah. right. Like just change the sport completely. Um, so they're, they're really innovative. But, you know, the physical side, I think, has been pretty well established. But the addition of mental techniques, um, you can't just say, oh, well, be tough. You know, like you're a fighter. You should have grit. Of course, you've got to have that. Right. Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't have it. That you know, that mentality is a given. Um, but, you know, using certain techniques and tactics that, you know, you train in your brain in the same way you train your body is kind of the next forefront or the next frontier in, in sport, I think, not just in MMA. But harnessing the capabilities of the brain is going to evolve all sports um, to, to the next level through, you know, micro um, analyzers and micro monitoring and data and, and, and things like that. Um, so, yeah, we, we brought um, psychology on, online because we've seen the need um, in, in our clientele. And it's, it's only going to get more and more involved in what we do. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you about something because I love doing this and I've done this a bunch of times and I feel like it helps, but I don't know if it helps. Like I don't have actual science behind it. Yeah. Cold exposure yeah. for recovery. Is it settled science or is it placebo or is it where where is it on the on the scale of this actually? No, works? It, it, it's absolutely, you know, the, there's more and more data now coming out, um, you know, whether it's Wim Hof or, you know, in the Huberman lab, he's, you know, Andrew Huberman's got a great podcast. He just did one with Andy Galpin and he made reference to it. I, you know, I've been on that. I've yeah. made reference to it. There, there's a lot of data in terms of what cold exposure um, can do in terms of immune system and regeneration of cells and, um, you know, a, a variety of different things. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely something that has been, again, great example of um, not evidence-based practice, but practice-based knowledge right so people were jumping in you know like up in finland or scandinavia or russia whatever jumping into you know frozen lakes and saying oh i feel great and then you jump on like they they were people just playing around with it i'm not sure they had like great science to support why it was working um but they kept doing it and it made them feel fantastic and they were living longer and now 
um, you know, people are starting to put data and science against that. So yeah, cold exposure um, is is very much now a, a real strategy, not only for you know performance, but just longevity and lifestyle and well-being for sure. Saunas is something they also do a lot in Finland, which is not very popular here in the U.S. for some reason. They have like more saunas than people, I think, in Finland. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a culture thing, you know, like just sitting in the sauna and whacking yourself with a brand. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure. Yeah, Americans and, and and the Brits certainly don't do that as much as Russians and Finnish. No, we're not ready for it. Uh, Duncan, this was illuminating. Thank you so much for doing this today. No, thanks, Roy. Appreciate it. And uh, good luck with the rest of the podcast. And uh, yeah, thanks for the time, man. Appreciate it. Where are the best uh, places uh, to find you? Where can people find you? On I the mean, internet? I'm on most social channels, you know, whether it's Twitter or Instagram. I'm just Dr. Duncan, Dr. Underscore Duncan, underscore French, I think. So yeah, reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn if you need me, whatever. But uh, yeah, happy to All check. right. All right. This is awesome. Thanks again, man. All right. See you. T- take care.